Today's Bible reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, and it can be found on page 966 in the Pew Bibles. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favourable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, and hunger. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. Today, we continue on in our sermon series in 2 Corinthians, yet always rejoicing. And since we restarted our sermon series about a month ago, we've been working our way through chapter 5, focusing on the ministry of reconciliation. And over the past few weeks, I've made the point that the ministry of reconciliation is a sort of golden chain of discipleship. The ministry of reconciliation begins with God, who in turn passes it on to Jesus, who in turn passes it on to the apostles, who in turn passes it on to the church, so the church can pass it on to the world. And last week, we were looking at Paul's example as a minister of reconciliation to the Corinthians so that we could emulate his example as we fulfill our calling as ministers of reconciliation to the world around us. Maybe you've heard that expression, like a boss. Some of you have, if you're younger. If you're older, you have a different idea when you hear someone say, like a boss. But if you're younger, below 30, you hear the expression, like a boss. People post videos, videos of themselves online doing things like a boss. So they dunk a basketball like a boss. They ski like a boss. They crack an egg between their shoulder blades like a boss. I mean, it's all these sorts of things, right? And if there was a ministering the gospel like a boss, I'm pretty sure that the Apostle Paul would get that title. So we're looking this morning, continuing on uh, in the passage we started last week about how Paul ministers the gospel to the Corinthians so that we can do the same to our families and neighbors and the world around us. And as I noted last week, we started with verse 20, 21 of chapter 5. There are eight principles between chapter 5, verse 20, and 6, verse 13. We looked at the first two last week, that in order to minister the gospel like an apostle, we need to receive the message of the gospel, that's the first principle, and we need to embody the message of the gospel, that's the second principle. So this morning, we move forward to 6, verse 1 through 5, and we're going to pick up the next three principles. So with no further ado, let's get started with our first principle for this morning, ministering the gospel like an apostle means making an appeal. All right, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this, Working together with God, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 
And the term that's translated here as appeal in 6.1 comes from the Greek, the Greek word parakalamen, and it means basically what it means in English, to implore, to request, to entreat. It's the same Greek word that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 8, when he uh, asks the Corinthians, he says he begs or he parakalomens them to reaffirm their love for each other. So a parakalomen is more than a disinterested, polite request. It's a heartfelt appeal towards a specific action. And the point that I want to make here is less about the content of Paul's appeal, which is what we looked at last week, and more about the fact that he makes one. I just noted the ministry of reconciliation flows in a sort of golden chain from the Father to the Son to the apostles to the church out into the world. And Paul is here making his appeal as a minister of the gospel in keeping with God's appeal to the world as part of the continuation of the golden chain. So look back up to our text from a few weeks ago, chapter 5, we can look at verse 18 through 20. Paul says, all this, the ministry of reconciliation, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God makes his appeal to the world in Christ, through Christ, who passes this along to Paul and the fellow apostles who are now passing it along to the church so that the church can pass this appeal on out into the world. And the point that I want to make this morning is that making an appeal for folks to believe and to receive the gospel is an essential part of the ministry of reconciliation. Now, that might seem very plain and obvious, but I think it's worth reflecting on. And I think that there are two ditches. You'll know how I like my ditches. I think there are two ditches that we can fall into when it comes to making the appeal of the gospel. So on one side of the road is the ditch, what we could call the appeal-only gospel. We get so focused on making an appeal for people to believe the message of the gospel that we forget about the importance of embodying the gospel in love and relationships. Now, people who are, who are prone to the appeal-only gospel, and that's not all of us, but, but there are some of us who are prone to the appeal-only gospel, and people who are prone to the appeal-only gospel don't want to get to take the time to get to know the people that they're presenting the gospel to. They don't want to take the time to actually see people and hear people's thoughts and concerns and hearts. Appeal-only gospel folks just find it simpler and quicker and easier to preach at people. And when that happens, the gospel becomes an impersonal, detached paragraph of ideas for cognitive spiritual laws. And it can feel manipulative and impersonal when someone makes an appeal to the gospel without relationships. And an appeal-only gospel message is not Paul's example that he leaves with us. Paul developed a deep and personal relationship with the Corinthians. 
He says in verse 611, which we're going to get to next week, that he has opened wide his heart to the Corinthians. They're not just a project. They're not just some job. He truly knows them and he loves them. And if you read through Paul's letters and the ones that he writes to his churches, it's clear that he's in deep relationship with them. His appeal is always coming in the context of relationships. As a pastor friend of mine used to say, we have to build a bridge that can bear the weight of truth. Relationships are that bridge. The appeal to believe and receive the gospel power grows in proportion to the relationship that we have with the people we are sharing the gospel with. So the more deeper and solid the relationship, the more it can bear the weight of appeals. So we need to avoid the appeal-only gospel ditch. But in the opposite ditch is the appeal-less gospel. And I think this maybe is where most of us or more of us live. Some of us can get so focused on embodying the gospel and building relationships with people that we never actually get around to making an appeal at all. We live with integrity. We'll become genuine, no-strings-attached friends with people. We'll even do our best to love them. But our friendship evangelism never gets beyond friendship to evangelism. And I suspect that's because the friendship aspect of our friendship evangelism doesn't ever run the risk of getting us ostracized or judged. If we never put our cards on the table, then we never have to worry about our cards being trumped. And so we just keep the appeal closer to the chest. But if we say that we are building a bridge that can bear the weight of truth and then never ask it to bear the weight of the gospel, are we really building a bridge that can bear the weight of truth? If our no-strings-attached friendship evangelism stalls out at friendship and never gets to evangelism, then are we really building a true friendship? People need the hope of the gospel. This is why we became Christians, right? We recognized that we needed the hope of the gospel, that the whole world needs the hope of the gospel. We reached out and we received the gospel offered freely as a gift to us in Christ. And people receive the gospel best in genuine, no-strings-attached relationships. This is likely true for most of us in our own conversion stories. It was through relationships with people who presented the gospel to us that we were able to receive the love of God. But there will come a point when genuine love and the true honoring of a friendship will require us to make an appeal for the gospel. A point comes when we have to be willing to spend the relational capital that we've accrued in the friendship. And sometimes I think we, we freight this with more than it needs to be. We make a bigger deal about this. We, we think it's kind of all or nothing, that if I appeal to you to believe the gospel and you say no or not yet, well, that, that's a disaster. But it's not a disaster. It's okay. It's not like my appeal to you 
to believe the gospel needs to come with an ultimatum. I appeal to you to receive Christ, and if you don't, then I can't be your friend anymore. This is not how God makes his appeal to us. Mercifully, graciously, he has from all time been making his appeal to the world to be reconciled to him. He has made many appeals to us and continues to make appeals to us if we fall away from him or wander away from him. And when we reject his appeals, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't say the relationship is over, but he continues to graciously be our friend and make appeals. So it's not as though if we lay our cards on the table and the person says no, that we have to then pick up all of our cards and go home and the party's over and the relationship is done. We just continue on in love, our no-strings-attached friendship, waiting for the Holy Spirit to bring the next opportunity when it's appropriate to make an appeal to the gospel. So which ditch are you most likely to fall into? Are you more likely to fall into the appeal-only ditch, preaching the gospel but holding back on relationships, or the appeal-less ditch, big on relationships, but holding back the message of the gospel. Or maybe it changes from relationship to relationship. In some relationships, you're one way. In other relationships, you're the other way. Consider, I invite you to consider a relationship or two that you have where you feel like maybe the Lord stirs or brings to mind this person with respect to the gospel. Is the Lord inviting you to to build a stronger bridge of relationship so that you can make a gospel appeal? Or is the Lord inviting you to put gospel weight on the bridge that you've already built? So our first principle is making an appeal, make an appeal in the context of relationship. The second principle comes from verse 6, chapter 6, verse 3. When we are ministering the gospel like an apostle, we need to remove unnecessary obstacles. Looking here in verse 3, the apostle Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And Paul's concern here in verse 3, but really we see this all throughout his ministry and his letters, his concern is to remove any unnecessary obstacles that stand in the way of the gospel going forward. So we can see this in a number of places, in just Corinthians. We can see it also in places like Romans and beyond. But he does this with food in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10. And in the early church, as more and more Gentiles were converting into Christianity, and Christianity was largely Jewish at the time, there was debate about the morality of eating meat from the, the public meat market. Because so much of the meat in the public meat market was leftovers from the temple that had been used in sacrificing to pagan gods. And so could you buy meat from the meat market because of its association with idolatry? And Paul, he tells the Corinthians, he doesn't have a problem with eating meat from the meat market. But his position was this. If eating meat from the meat market stands in the way of the gospel, then I'll never eat meat again. He doesn't want meat and meat-eating to be an obstacle to the gospel. He takes the same basic position about observing Jewish feast days and holidays in Romans 14. Some esteemed certain days as holier than others because of their 
association with Judaism, while others esteemed all days alike. And in Paul's estimation, all days were the same. But if some wanted to observe certain days, that was fine. He wasn't going to make an issue of it. But he told his churches not to make an issue of it either, to let each one choose his own conscience. Takes the same basic position as it relates to finances. Paul was unique among the other apostles because he conducted his ministry free of charge. And it wouldn't have been wrong for Paul to take financial support from the Corinthians or his other churches. And in fact, he tells his protege Timothy that this is the normal and customary thing uh, that should, should happen when uh, an apostle or a pastor ministers in a congregation. So don't be getting any funny ideas about my compensation here this morning. You can take Pastor Johnny's compensation away if you want to. But, <laughs> but Paul was unique uh, among the other apostles because he was always supplying his own financial needs. So in 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 11, he writes, talking about this very issue of compensation, he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, meeting, eat, Jewish holidays, paying one's pastor, those aren't issues today that typically stand in the way of the gospel, but they were in the days of the early church. And Paul's basic gospel method was to get rid of non-essential stuff that unnecessarily stood in the way of people coming to understand and accept the gospel. And I think that's a good model for us to follow. And again, I think there are potential for two ditches here. In the one ditch, we can put up obstacles to the gospel by merging our personal preferences and our personal morality with the message of the gospel. And then we can impose those personal preferences on those that we are sharing the gospel with. So that in order to accept the gospel, they have to accept our personal preferences and our personal morality. So in Paul's day, that would have been like saying, to be a Christian means you have to have my view of eating meat from the meat market. Or you have to have my view of the Jewish holidays. Or in our day, it's saying or implying things like, to be a Christian means you have to have my view of political engagement, or you have to adopt my view of social strategies, or you have to have my view of alcohol. Or in my parents' generation, it would have been saying something like, you have to have my view of bowling. Now, some of you are old enough perhaps to remember the advent of bowling, but when bowling came out, it was a bar game. It was attached to bars. And of course, good Christians didn't go to bars because there was alcohol at bars. So in order to stay away from alcohol, you didn't go to bars, and that's why you couldn't do bowling. Well, listen, the gospel is challenging enough as it is without getting bowling involved in the whole thing. <laughs> and we don't need to make it any harder than it needs to be by merging the gospel with our non-scriptural preferences about non-scriptural essentials, our views on politics, our views on social strategy, our non-biblical moral fences, or our views of bowling, 
When we merge our personal preferences with the gospel, we are putting up unnecessary obstacles to the gospel. But the other ditch, the other way we can create barriers to the gospel is when we are not willing to give up our legitimate Christian freedoms for the sake of the gospel. What if Paul had said, my Christian freedom allows me to eat meat from the meat market and no one is going to stand in the way of my Christian freedom. And if that means people are going to hell, to hell with them. My Christian freedom is more important than their acceptance of the gospel. And I think we saw some of this during the COVID days. I don't mean so much we here in Calvary, but more broadly in the church. There were so many debates about non-essentials, about masks and vaccines and judging each other and and those became barriers that stood in the way of the gospel. And everyone was claiming their Christian liberty and Christian freedom. And you can't tell me that I need to wear a mask. And on and on it went. I thought we navigated those very well, by the way. But that's putting unnecessary obstacles in the way of the gospel. And I think sometimes we have to sacrifice legitimate Christian freedoms for the sake of the gospel. And missionaries do this all the time in other contexts. So missionaries in North Africa, for instance, will adopt more conservative dress codes than Christian freedom requires. Or work within the constraints of more conservative gender norms so as not to impede the gospel. So removing obstacles means that sometimes we have to sacrifice our non-essential preferences and other times our legitimate Christian freedoms. And that's why I think Paul is such a great example of both of these, because he sacrificed in both directions. He sacrificed some of his Christian freedoms in order to remove any unnecessary obstacles to the gospel when he was preaching to his Jewish community, which was had far less freedom than he did. As a, as a Jewish Christian, he was pulled into a world of freedom, but when he moved into his ministry to Judaism, they had less freedom, and so he curtailed his freedom to be able to minister the gospel more effectively in his native habitat. But he also sacrificed some of his personal preferences in order to remove any unnecessary obstacles when he was preaching to the Gentile community. So he says, to the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. He was willing to give up in both directions, whatever was needed so that the gospel could go forth in both communities. Generally, here's a principle that I found. If a Christian is more socially and morally conservative than the host culture or the people the Christians are trying to reach, then the Christians have to become extra careful that they don't merge their personal non-scriptural preferences with the gospel and then impose those non-scriptural preferences on the people that they are sharing the gospel with. But if the Christian is more socially and morally free than the host culture or the people that they're trying to share the gospel with, then they have to be careful that they don't refuse to give up non-essential Christian freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Or we can say it like this, perhaps more simply. If you have more rules than those you are sharing the gospel with, be prepared to sacrifice some of your non-essential rules for the sake of the gospel. 
And if you have less rules than the people that you are sharing the gospel with, be prepared to sacrifice some of your non-essential Christian freedoms for the sake of the gospel. In both instances, we have to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. So are there any unnecessary obstacles that the Lord is calling you to remove that stand in the way of your capacity to be a minister of reconciliation to your community? Is the Lord calling you to sacrifice any of your non-scriptural preferences for the sake of the gospel? Or perhaps sacrifice any of your legitimate Christian freedoms for the sake of the gospel? And then we have to think about that collectively, too, as a church, because we as a church, for sure, have more rules than does our community. We have become accustomed to certain rhythms in the Christian life and curtailing things. We have to be very conscious and thoughtful about when we bring the gospel to our community, do we attach into the gospel things that are not essential, that become barriers to our community receiving the gospel. This requires great thoughtfulness and discernment and prayer, and we want to be thoughtful and careful about that as a church. All right, so our first principle, make an appeal in the context of relationships. Our second principle, remove unnecessary obstacles. And then the third principle, be willing to endure hardship. In verses five and four, in verses four and five, Paul tells us that he goes one step further than removing unnecessary obstacles, he actively endures suffering and hardship. So look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in affliction, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. In verse 6, Paul continues the list, but he changes the focus away from suffering and hardship. So we're going to pick that up next week. But the point I want to observe here is that Paul is willing to endure hard things in order to see the gospel go forward in the lives of the Corinthians. And this is actually the very opposite of the super apostles. And we've been talking about the super apostles throughout the series. These were these false teachers who have come in behind Paul, and they are threatening to lead the Corinthians away from the purity of the gospel. And the super apostles were all about success and victory and glory. They didn't suffer for the Corinthians. Indeed, they brought suffering upon the Corinthians. So in 11.19, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for putting up with the super apostles. And he tells the Corinthians that the super apostles, they make slaves of you, they devour you, they take advantage of you, they put on airs, they even strike you in the face. So the super apostles hadn't come to Corinth for the sake of the Corinthians, for the sake of sharing the gospel, but for their own sake, for their own prestige, for their own advantage and gain. And the falseness of the super apostles, the falseness of their apostolic calling was proven by the fact that they were not willing to suffer for the sake of the Corinthians. But if we return to Paul's golden chain vision of the Great Commission, we can see that suffering is an essential aspect of the ministry of reconciliation. God in Christ 
suffers as an expression of his love to the apostles, who suffer as an expression of God's love to the church, which suffers as an expression of God's love to the world. The willingness to bear up sacrificially in love, suffering for those to whom we are bringing the gospel is an essential element of the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul is so concerned to cut the legs out from underneath these false teachers, these super apostles, because they are a false link in the golden chain of discipleship. They do not stand as true examples of God's sacrificial love in Christ to the church. And if the Corinthians follow them, they will lose their capacity, their link back, and they will lose their capacity to stand as an example of God's sacrificial love in Christ to the world. And there just is no way to separate suffering from sacrificial love and the proclamation of the gospel. This is what it means, I talked about last week, to embody the gospel that we preached, to become the righteousness of God for the sake of others. Now, this doesn't mean that every act of speaking the gospel will necessarily involve suffering like Jesus and the apostles went through. All of those lives ended in death or imprisonment. That isn't true for every Christian. And it doesn't mean that, that, that there's a one-for-one relationship between speaking the gospel and encountering suffering. Often Paul and Jesus and the other apostles spoke the gospel message, and they didn't have to endure any suffering to, or bear with people's hardships in order to preach the gospel in every single moment. Nor does it mean that we are all called to the same gospel ministry or that we have to pick up every gospel cross that we come upon or climb every gospel mountain that we see just because it's there. God leads us by his spirit into the unique gospel ministry opportunities that he has for each one of us. But Paul's example, following the example of Jesus, does mean that if our greatest priority in life is to avoid suffering, and difficulty, then we will never be much more than mediocre ministers of the gospel. Because nothing demonstrates the nature of God's sacrificial love for the world more than when people who carry his message of sacrificial love are willing to embrace, to endure sacrificial love for the sake of others. Because how can we proclaim that God's sacrificial love in Christ is available to the world if we withhold God's sacrificial love from them in our actions. We are not called to simply speak the righteousness of God to a lost world. We are called to embody the righteousness of God to the lost world. And no doubt, you know many people who do not know the love of God whether it's people in your immediate household, whether it's extended family, whether it's neighbors, whether it's people at work, wherever it might be, friends, people at school, you know people who do not know the love of God, people who do not deserve the love of God. But perhaps even one step further, people who do not deserve your love, And it's that last category that stands in the way. 
of you ministering the gospel to them. Because you understand they don't deserve God's love, none of us do, and you're happy to tell them that God still loves them. But if you have to embody God's love for them when they don't deserve your love, well, that's much more of a challenge. But as Paul says in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the love with which I am called to love people who don't deserve my love isn't my own love. The love with which I am called to love people who don't deserve my love is God's love because he has poured out his love into my heart through the Holy Spirit. And that's the love with which I love those sacrificially in the hope of the gospel. So is there someone in your life that God is calling you to sacrificially love? as an expression of the gospel. I invite you to reflect on that, to ponder that. Maybe there is someone in your life that you know they need the gospel. You're very aware of their need for the gospel, but you have not been a minister of reconciliation in their life because it would require you to love them, and you don't want to give your love to them. Well, don't give your love to them. Give God's love to them through you. Open yourself up to let the Spirit speak to you. All right, so three principles today from the example of the Apostle Paul. Make an appeal in the context of relationships. Remove unnecessary obstacles. Be willing to love sacrificially. And all of this set within the context of God's love for us in Christ. We're going to close by singing son of suffering which is a song that we've sung many times here and the song is a reminder about jesus's ministry of reconciliation in our lives how he has been willing to bear our suffering to bring us the hope of the love of god so as we sing it be reminded of jesus's love for you but let yourself be open too to how the spirit might be leading you to be a link in the golden chain of discipleship for someone else. How you can extend and carry on the ministry of reconciliation that has given to you into the life of someone else. It may be that you are the link that can connect that person to the golden chain of discipleship. We can't be Jesus to the world in a final and ultimate sense. But we can be the picture or the scent of Jesus to those around us. And as we embrace the love of Christ, we embrace his love and his kindness into our lives. Then we have his love and kindness to give out into the world as he directs us. God, thank you that you gave us Christ and thank you that we don't have to generate our own love on our own. And there are certain people, Lord, that are for sure difficult to love in our own strength. We uh, can't always do it, but we have uh, great hope in your love, and so just keep pouring out more of your love into our hearts, Lord, so that we are able to pour that out into the lives of others. God, give us wisdom about when to make an appeal. Uh, Lord, you uh, just guide us by your Spirit if more bridge building is necessary or if it's time uh, to make an appeal. I pray that you would give wisdom to folks here. I pray you would also help us to remove unnecessary obstacles that 
need not stand in the way of the gospel, so that the gospel can shine clearly and you can speak clearly uh, through us, Lord. And God, help us to embrace hardship as is needed for the sake of your gospel going forward. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.